On September 10, 1900, the Chicago White Stockings beat the Detroit Tigers 6-2. Teddy Roosevelt made a stump speech, and in the tiny Susquehanna River town of Wyalusing, Pennsylvania, population 525, a baby boy was born. His parents named him Philip, Philip Van Dorn Stern. And in 1938, he wrote a 4,000-word short story, The Greatest Gift, that went on in a winding way like the river to become the 1946 movie, It's a Wonderful Life. That from an article by Mary Beth Kennedy Voda in Susquehanna Life magazine in 2017. We know that the film has become a holiday classic centering on the life of the character George Bailey and the life lesson he learns. The story of It's a Wonderful Life is such a favorite, in fact, that it has been adapted many times in many different ways. There was a musical stage adaptation of the movie titled A Wonderful Life that was written by Sheldon Harnick and Joe Raposo. It's had revivals in the 21st century and has been produced by regional theaters throughout the country. The film was adapted into a play in two acts, with many scenes from the movie alluded to rather than enacted. The film was twice adapted for radio in 1947, first on Lux Radio Theater and then on the Screen Guild Theater in December 1947 and again in March in 1951. Meanwhile, It's a Wonderful Life, a live radio play, a stage adaptation presented as a 1940s radio show was adapted by Joe Landry. All that we learn from the Focus On series. Downriver from Philip Van Doren Stern's hometown, this much-loved story has been adapted yet again along the Susquehanna River in Bloomsburg. James Good, emeritus ensemble member of the Bloomsburg Theater Ensemble, has been inspired by the 1947 Lux Radio Theater broadcast to create a stage version with original music, and it will be presented as the company's holiday show this year, directed by Elizabeth Dowd. The show runs from November 26th through December 27th at the Alvina Krauss Theater in downtown Bloomsburg. We had a chance to speak by phone with Elizabeth Dowd and James Good about the pandemic, the production, and the show itself. I certainly have great pleasure at this point in the, in the long career with BTE of thinking of the people who I see who are now grown-ups who started at BTE because their parents bought them or family members or aunts and uncles or someone brought them to a BTE holiday show, and that became a tradition. And I, because we live in a, you know, a rural region in a small town, you meet those people who came to BTE through a holiday show, and that's just a beautiful thing to me. I think uh, so many of our holiday shows are intergenerational in terms of the subject matter, and we've tried to do shows that appeal to a wide range of audiences. And as Elizabeth said, to see parents coming who came when they were kids really makes it a community event for us uh, and a special time for us to connect with the community. 
and the increasing number of people that we run into who not only watched but were in a BTE holiday show because many yeah. of our holiday shows have featured young people who may have not in any way gone on in theater, but that remains a kind of crystal image of their childhood, a significant point that they look back on and go, oh, I did that whole holiday show at BTE. That's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. It is. And I would like to ask you about how you choose each year. Obviously, we know one thing is you don't want to repeat a Christmas carol every year, so you have a variety of possibilities. What about this time? What did you think about when you were going to choose this year's piece? Well, originally, we were slated to be producing a Christmas story. Some of the shows that are most audience-beloved You know, we try to do those in roughly a four- or five-year rotation, and Christmas Story was up, and I had put my hand up to direct it. And I think around about August, I literally woke up one night and went, there are no parents. We need 14 young actors to do that show, two casts with seven each. And I just couldn't imagine that, that it would be a safe environment or that audiences would feel comfortable, even if we created a safe environment. The perception of safety is as important as safety at this point, and we just didn't feel like we could take that risk with uh, with the young people in our community. So we rallied our forces and put our heads together, and this piece came to the top of the list very quickly because we hadn't done it in a while. We love it. It's a beloved story, but it doesn't require young audiences, and it, it allows a certain amount of social distancing as a radio piece for actors on the stage as well. And Jim, just give us the particulars of It's a Wonderful Life and how it comes to be this presentation that you'll be doing. Well, everyone's familiar with the film, of course. But back in the mid-90s, there was a PBS station in Southern California that recreated the Lux Radio Theater version of It's a Wonderful Life. They did this as a live show, as a fundraiser. And this idea got picked up by other theaters around the country, us included. Uh, And the Lux Radio Theater was one of the major radio programs of the 30s and 40s, maybe even to the 50s. They would do an hour abridgment of a recent film. And the Lux Radio Theater version of It's a Wonderful Life, they they had Jimmy Stewart and, and Donna Reed in that. And it sort of helped audiences reconnect to the film. And so I took the transcript of the Lux Radio Theater version And we worked it out to be done as a live stage show with sound effects, commercials featuring our show sponsors or community events. There's audience participation. And it was just a blast to do because the audiences in our theater sort of see two shows at once. They see the performers doing the radio show, but they also have in their minds what the radio audience at home is hearing. So it really makes for a real community event right there at the theater. Not only is the play about a community coming together, but the experience of seeing it live as a radio show with audience participation makes the whole experience for the live audience to be fresh and in a communal event. And it was we've done the show twice before, but it's been about... 15 years since we did it last. So it seemed like a great show to bring back. And people have wonderful memories of having seen us do it before. So there's a lot of excitement to see it again. Elizabeth, we just heard Jim lay out what's involved. What do you have to make sure happens so that we're drawn in on both levels? 
Well, I think it's always a balance between being aware that there is a live studio audience and making it, making sure that the story is clear. The other thing that has been uh, enlightening to me is that I can no longer assume that the generation of younger people, even among our young actors, many of them had never seen the movie. They knew the title. They didn't know the story. So Eric Wunsch playing George Bailey and Morgan Kaufman, who is playing Mary Hatch, they had to watch the movie. They had never seen it. They were unaware. And I realized that the things that I think of as references that everybody knows this story is not true anymore. So with that knowledge that there may be people coming to this who have never seen the movie, I wanted to really make do everything I could to both be aware that it's a live theater event and it is a live theater event that is referencing a live radio event and trying to find a middle ground between the relationship to the microphone and the relationship to the actors and the engagement that an actor gets, the the excitement that an actor gets from uh, really playing off another actor rather than their relationship, primary relationship being the microphone. So we've been looking at that balance from night to night, and I've been asking for a different scale. And tonight we move on to the stage, so that scale is likely to change because now we're going to be in a big space. But one of the things that I think is super theatrical and super fun is that there is live music, which um, is just always a pleasure to be in the midst of, but this music was composed by uh, Bill Decker for this show, and Bill is now deceased, but his family has allowed us to use continue to use his music. And the music director, Aaron Eldred, who stepped into playing the music, he's just been uh, amazed at how perfectly the transitions work. And the first time he played them, you know, they stop at exactly the point where it says music out. You know, it's just, it's a score is there and it does so much of the work. And there's live quartet music, which has been tremendous fun for us to work on in local commercials, and then live sound effects. And that was a feature that I think Jim envisioned and that was part of radio. But to have the audience watching every sound effect be made live in front of them is, I just think, a really fun and indifferent kind of engagement. Because usually when you hear sound effects, you know, there are some machines somewhere, but these are being made in real time. What is it, do you think, each of you, that talks to us today in this story? For me... The story is about how you never know the extent and the depth to which your life has impacted other people's. And we often, we usually go through life not letting other people know how much their life has impacted our life. So this connection, unconscious, subconscious connection with our neighbors, our family, and people, strangers we don't know, can have a profound reverberation. And at the holidays, I think we're especially vulnerable to these connections at the holiday season because of all the memories that come back to us and all the hopes we have at the holiday time. I'll chime in and say that I think it's a special privilege or special gift, I guess, to be presenting this in a small town because our community knows that dynamic of the way that you can't walk down the street. You have to leave extra time because you know you're going to run into a couple people and have a small chat before you reach your destination. That's just how it is. And that's a beautiful thing, and that is something that our community shares. I also think that in... I think this 
peace means more to me now than it ever has, and I've always loved it. But the, the social media and the way that people can feel invisible or feel that they are not valued because there are certain markers of economic success or professional success that are spread wide and far that make them seem successful. And what is a truly successful life? And is it really monetary success? And that's the essential dilemma between, you know, Potter and George Bailey. And I really love any play that reminds us that there are several ways to measure a life. And this holds up, I think, a a deeper one. Anybody who does radio every day, we know the importance of breathing and breath and telling the story with our voices alone. Is that a consideration in a play like this, where you are, in fact, telling this story in radio terms? Or is it really theatrical in the way that you would be doing it in a normal way or a blend? I think it varies from actor to actor. And so our actor playing George Bailey, I can see that it comes alive in him if he is physical in his storytelling. And and that's a beautiful thing because he connects to it every single night in a very true way. For other actors who are playing multiple characters, because many of us are playing multiple characters, it's more the, the physical simplicity and the focus on the vocal instrument. Um, I think for actors, it is a special emphasis on a time period, a manner of speech, a rhythm of speech, and trying to take people back to a time through the vehicle of voice and the cadence. So I ask people to watch movies, The Bishop's Wife, which was a big hit in 47, 48, I guess. So I think the emphasis on voice, absolutely. And Jim, what are you doing in this production? Well, uh, I've been involved in some rewrites and some updating. We wrote some new commercials, and I've been working with uh, Aaron, the musical director, in reassembling the uh, piano score, making some adjustments with that. I'm not performing in it this year, so my work has been pretty much behind the scenes and at the uh, typewriter (laughs) laptop. When you say commercials, do people think powder milk biscuits? What is the style of the (laughs) commercials that you create? Uh, Well, we do a commercial for Lux Soap. Of course, it's the Lux Radio Theater, so Lux is, is featured. And in that ad, it's sort of an interview with our host announcer, with the young actress playing Mary Hatch, and it sort of talks about her career as a young actress and how important Lux Soap is for, for actors. We do a, a commercial for the town of Bloomsburg, for First Columbia Bank and Trust, and for Ace Renko, who are sponsors of the show. Some of them involve music. Uh, so I, I think um, they're, they're a bit tongue-in-cheek, but if you're not aware of the period of radio ads, I think they come across very sincere. We've also created kind of, uh, you know, we're using our own names as the performers, but uh, we are fictionalized versions of ourselves. And so when we're introduced to the audience, Michael Yerges, as the host, has given little snippets of bios that we kind of brainstormed the pecking order within the company that's assembled, you know, who are the famous people and who are the kind of local standards. And uh, just looking at the kind of uber world in which we exist, which has been tremendous fun. Tell us when you open and when we get to see this. Sure. Well, the headlines are that it runs from November 26th through December 27th. 
We have previews on Friday, November 26th at 2 p.m., and that's a very special day for us because that's the day that audience, the community members, bring uh, non-perishable food items for the food cupboard to be gathered, and that's their admission is bringing food so that that can be distributed uh, to restock the food bank after Thanksgiving. And uh, that's just a wonderful day, and in some years it's just people around the corner waiting to get in. That's a 2 p.m. performance, and then Saturday, November 27th, 2 p.m. is our lower price preview, and then we open that evening. Saturday, November 27th was a 7.30 show, and then we run regularly Thursday through Sunday with 3 o'clock matinees through December 27th. And this year, we're very happy to say that we are offering school matinees, having not had a holiday show last year and having had theater in the classroom school tour canceled because of COVID this year. Some schools are booking, and so they're scheduled in December. There will be masking and socially distant seating, and I should say that audience is coming to any performance that we have socially distant seating and that masks will be requested. But the matinees are available for fourth grade and up, and school, any schools listening are interested, they can contact bte.org. Paula Henry is our school programs manager, but we are very excited that we have already booked several matinees that will have young audiences back in the theater, and that is something that is beautiful to us. And one more thing, on December 5th, there will be a matinee that will be interpreted, American Sign Language interpreted, and I would love to get the word out about that as well. Let me ask you each, what has this COVID journey for you both and the company meant? You're going to go to the stage tonight to rehearse for a live performance. Live theater is back with safety protocols in place, of course. What's going through your mind? As a performing arts organization, this COVID period has been a time of some reassessment and rejuvenation and reevaluation of priorities and just resetting our imaginations to come up with new solutions. Um, it It was a difficult period, but I think our organization, and many organizations are coming out stronger and with a commitment to find new audiences, to connect with new audiences, and to reevaluate our body of work and the group of artists that we can rely on and to rely on us. So I think we and a lot of organizations are, are much better. And what are you thinking, Elizabeth? Well, very simply, everything is more precious. To have had it taken away uh, and to have lost people in our community to COVID and to other illnesses along the way, everything feels more precious. And that's palpable in this story and in the beautiful piece that Jim has adapted for us. It's just precious. BTE's Elizabeth Dowd, director of Merry Christmas, George Bailey, and James Good, emeritus ensemble member who did the adaptation, speaking with us about Merry Christmas, George Bailey, that will run from November 26th through December 27th, produced and presented by the Bloomsburg Theater Ensemble as the company's annual holiday offering. The work was inspired by the 1947 Lux Radio Theater broadcast of It's a Wonderful Life, 
And this production features music by William Decker, the late William Decker. The play recreates an old-time live radio show. There will be musical interludes, live sound effects produced on the spot, audience participation, and local commercials, as we heard. There are special school matinees, and you can get information about those matinees online. All the matinees begin at 10 in the morning. There is a matinee on December 5th that is going to be interpreted with American Sign Language. And then there is also the wonderful November 26th performance, Friday at 2. Admission will be one or more items of non-perishable food to be donated to Bloomsburg's Food Covered. And admission to the show on Saturday, November 27th at 2 is a reduced price. So for more information on the dates and the times, bte.org, bte.org, and the Bloomsburg Theater Ensemble will present this piece at the Alvina Krauss Theater in downtown Bloomsburg.